I was telling a couple of the uh, brothers that uh, yesterday I was that close to raising the white flag and calling up Reed and saying, uh, hey, can you do this? But uh, God willing, we'll all get through it. God willing, Jesus will be honored as we uh, cover a magnificent text that Mike assigned us. I have no excuse for not being prepared. Mike uh, gave us this assignment last April. That's the longest. Sometimes, I'm sure, um, you know that uh, when you're given a long time to prepare for something, you put it off till the end, right? At least that's the way I got through college. <clears throat> and uh, the text is Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, it's my intention this morning to focus on the very first part <clears throat> of the author and perfecter or author and finisher. And uh, Peter, my friend, of over 40 years, is going to speak on the second part. And I just want to say a word about Pete. Uh, He's English, but he's been in America longer than he was in England. So don't let him tell you he's too English. Um, I met Peter before either one of us were Christians at Xerox. And um, the Lord used the Bible study at Xerox in both of our lives. And in fact, there was a great movement of his spirit back in the early 70s where there was a dozen or more men uh, that were brought to Jesus Christ as a result of that Bible study. And the people, obviously, that attended and sponsored that study. And it was a wonderful thing, a real movement. Uh, as we called it the incubator. When you have a bunch of Christians that are saved and then are working together uh, more than eight hours a day, it's a wonderful experience. It's like being put under it, a little incubator, a nice warm light. And you can encourage one another, etc. Anyways, that's where Peter and I met. <coughs> and uh, as you'll hear later when he gets formally introduced, and as you'll see for yourself, he can handle the Word of God, which I'm grateful. <clears throat> now, my assumption is is that, um, is the speaker working? You know, I have a double combination. I have no voice and I have no ears, so I'm just totally uh, operating in a vacuum here. Um, the Hebrews 12 text, very, very familiar text. I'm sure that all of you know uh, the context, but... You know, you can't really just, I, I, I feel un, unclean diving into a text like this without some background, putting it into the context of the entire book. And you know, the book was written somewhere around the middle of the first century. Uh, Jewish Christians, Jewish converts were struggling to survive. Uh, they were dropping like flies, actually. And the writer of this epistle writes this letter to them to be an encouragement to keep going, to hang in there, don't quit. And he's, he's obviously, um, this is why I think it's Paul, but I can't say that officially. The architecture of the epistle is classically Pauline in that it starts with the doctrine, 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 and then it goes into practical applications. And here we are in chapter 12, we're into the practical applications. 
And chapter 12 obviously follows chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the so-called Hall of Fame or Hall of Faith, where all the people who lived in the Old Covenant times lived by faith. And he said, men of whom the world was not worthy. And he lists them one after the other after the other, and then he comes along here and pulls out the big guns in chapter 12. And he gives gives us the greatest example anyone could possibly give to encourage Christians to hang in there in spite of persecution, in spite of hard times, in spite of trials. The difficulties that these Jewish Christians were experiencing in this first century was that persecution was not only from without, but it was from within, and their own families. Their own families were kicking them out because they made a profession of faith. Sounds like you, Brother Chan. Sounds like you with your dad when you became a Christian, right? You're out of here. And this is what was happening. So the greatest illustration that he can give this writer of this epistle, he says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to chapter 11, surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Mike said, this would be a good text to encourage the men of the church. And I think so too. Of course, in verse 1, he's He's saying, if you really want to compete, if you really want to run the race with your fellow Christians, the very first thing you have to do is get rid of any excess mass. And that word encumbrance in the New American Standard Version is the Greek word unkos, which implies mass or weight. Uh, Believe it or not, I used to be a runner. Uh, I used to do a lot of races on weekends. This is what happens when you quit. Uh, illustration. But if I wanted to be a runner again, the first thing I have to do is get rid of the mass, the uncost, the weight, the the thing that would trip me up. And he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So the idea is a sprinter or a marathoner trying to run a race with a with wingtips and a business suit. You got to get rid of all that stuff. It's going to trip you up and not enable you to run the race. And he says, run the race, which uh, uh, get rid of this ankhas or mass and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he comes up with this great picture of how we can run the race. What are the means that we can employ to run the race? He says in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author. Now, as I said, my focus is to talk about the author this morning here in this first session, talk about who he is. And then in the second session, I hope to bring to you 
some examples of how he lived so that we might follow in the same way and expect what we should expect as we run the race with Jesus. Now the Greek word in this passage, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author. The word author is archegos or pioneer. It's the word for pioneer, which is why I titled this message, Jesus, our pioneer. The idea is one who has gone before, one who charts the path. One who is a cartographer, if you will, lays out the map so we can figure it out. We know where we're going. Jesus, in his incarnation, was the chart maker, the map maker, the pioneer. You know, recently, uh, I, my wife and I and our dog, we drove from Webster, New York, where we live, to San Diego, California. We took seven days and six nights on the road. The first part of the trip's a little, eh. Louisville was a big highlight. But went through Louisville, went through Tennessee, went through Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas. We got to Arlington, Texas. It was minus five. Of course, I had a car top carrier of which I had my winter stuff up there because I wouldn't need it. Um, but as we got into Arizona, heading towards California, you begin to see the Rocky Mountain Range out in the panorama in front of you. And I started thinking, and Judy and I started talking about what it must have been like for the original people that traversed from the East Coast to the West Coast to discover the land of promise. And as you know, you're driving along and you're, air-conditioned car, I've got new software in my Garmin, I've got leather seats, power seats, uh, I've got it all, but you know, the original folks didn't have any of that, right? They were either a horse or worse, an unsprung wagon. And there they are as they are heading west, and they see the Rockies, and they say, wow, that's a beautiful panorama, but the closer you get, the bigger it gets. And you say, I can imagine them losing heart, kind of a, oh, man, what do we do now? Because there's no break, and it looks like you've got to go up and over. Well, there, are, there is a pass, and if you're on Route 40, you head, you head a little north, and you end up going through a division in the mountain ranges. But if you didn't know where that pass was, you'd be in big trouble, and you'd lose heart. Well, thankfully, we had pioneers that went ahead of us, and they laid out some charts and some maps and gave us directions as to how to get to the pass and how to aim for the pass and how to get through the mountains rather than having to go over the mountains. Some of us live our Christian lives like there is no map. And we love to figure it out because we're guys. We don't ask directions. We think we know what we're doing. And we head straight into the middle of the mountain range. And then we crash. Surprise. Well, this text commands us. This is not a suggestion. This is a command that we run the race. With this technique, fixing, I love the New American Standard. It says fixing. The ESV says looking. The idea is locking onto with intense focus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus as our pioneer. The one who has successfully run before us, victoriously, vigorously, magnificently, 
triumphantly succeeded in running the race and completed the race for us. And you'll hear all about completion later. So as I said, my objective is to suggest ways in which we can compete in the same race victoriously and how we should be looking to Jesus. And I want you to understand this morning, and I'm going to talk about some stuff that some of you are going to go, well, that's pretty basic, Al. Couldn't you come up with anything more creative than this? Well, some of you are going to think this is this is marvelous. This is this is phenomenal. It makes my head spin, and it makes my head spin when I think about it. But some of us are going to go, oh, well, I knew that already. Well, guess what? I'm not going to tell you anything you didn't already know. I'm just as in, by way of an encouragement to run the race. <clears throat> But I want us to look at Jesus by faith, the man. Jesus, the man who completed, who lived an earthly life by faith in the same sense that we're expected to live our life by faith. And I want you to focus on Jesus. And I hope that when you come out of here, one thing that I want you to take away is that We're not to look at each other. You won't find any energy in looking at each other. Now, we're supposed to encourage one another. That's the whole idea of the men's group. And I don't want to put that down. But the energy comes from looking at Jesus. The strength that I don't feel I have today comes from looking at Jesus. It doesn't come from looking at Jim or Andrew or even you. It comes from looking at Jesus. Now, as Trinitarians, we all know Jesus is God. So how are we supposed to see Jesus? How are we supposed to identify with Jesus as our pioneer? There's a huge, you know what a delta is? A delta is a difference. Uh, You know, you have a large number on one side, a small number on the other side. There's a big difference, a delta, between the two. Well, there's a big difference between me and Jesus. And you and Jesus, even Scott, there's a big difference between you and Jesus. How are we supposed to look at Jesus? He's the second person of the Trinity. Well, as I said, I'll focus on the incarnation. The objective of the incarnation is manifold, and I'm not going to address 57 points with 17 subheadings on each point about the incarnation. But simply, God was infinitely wise in giving us the God-man Jesus that we could focus on. Because we cannot identify with glorified deity. We just can't. He's too high. He's too far away. He's too perfect. I'm sinful. (coughs) I always think of the text in Isaiah. It ruminates in my brain all the time of what happens to an unholy man when he sees God. He thinks he's going to what? Die. So God in his infinitely wisdom gave us this manly Christ that we can identify with. This is a real man. This is the definition of a real man. I used to think growing up, and I mentioned this to the kids uh, in a sermon recently here, I wanted to be a cowboy. I could identify with Roy Rogers. 
I wanted to be Roy Rogers. Sorry, Peter. That was an American thing, you know. But um, I can identify with him. can't identify with deity. But we have a lot in common with this manly Christ. That's in a spiritual sense, right? We both have the mark of God on our souls. We were made in his image. We also are eternal beings. So we have that spirit identity with Christ. <clears throat> We've even as Christians been adopted into his family. We share the same name. We have, we have a lot spiritually that we can identify with Christ. Still it's difficult. So most of you men would agree that the primary objective of the incarnation was focused Godward to accomplish a propitiation. Four dollar word, I know, simply means Jesus Christ came to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God for us as our substitute. His attention was focused towards satisfying God, and so he did. The propitiation was his primary objective, but there were manifold reasons for his incarnation, of which I will only touch on, or briefly touch. God had every right to be ex- to have high expectations for his creation. We were made in his image. He expected certain things. Adam fell since then, generation after generation after generation after generation. It's been downhill from there. And here we are, 2015. You look at your own heart. I'm not talking about look at the world around you. Look at your own heart and understand the basic nature of depravity that still haunts us like a ghost. We're depraved. We have sin in our hearts. We know it. We know it. So it's obvious that we needed this substitute. We needed this one to live under the same constraints that we face every day. The same constraints associated with human existence. Now, we needed someone that was so God-pleasing, that was so God-satisfying, that he could be our substitute. And what do we have in the transfiguration? What do we hear in the transfiguration? What did the disciples hear in the bottom of the mountain of transfiguration? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So we have confirmation that our substitute was satisfactory with God's holy and righteous demands. But this morning, as I said, I want to focus on the manhood of Jesus. I, I, I don't know if you're old enough to recall the Marlboro Man. Where's my old reference? My old references aren't even here. I'm, Ron is usually the guy I call upon for the Marlboro, these, these references to somebody in the 50s. The Marlboro Man was the ideal that was held up as the manly man. You know... Um, I used to think John Wayne was the manly man, and then I found out his real name was was some feminine name. And what was it? Marianne. Mary, Marion. Uh, 
you know, that really broke my heart when I first heard that. Because here was the ideal man, the man's man. <clears throat> but that's what I want to look at this morning. Jesus as a man's man. And I want to talk about the man-to-man relationship that we have to have with Jesus. If we're going to run the race with endurance and survive at the end of the day. I want to issue a warning here. And I do not want to be misunderstood, so I want to be very careful. There is much benefit to having close fellowship with other men. Much benefit to having close fellowship with brothers in Christ. We can encourage one another, as I said before. We can exhort one another. But we must remember that we are all broken vessels We are all broken vessels. And no amount of fellowship with each other can substitute our relationship with Jesus. We can say, I'm going to be in an accountability group, and that's the solution. Brothers, no amount of fellowship is substitute for a relationship with Jesus. I can tell you story after story after story after story of men that I walked with, served with, pastored with, who are no longer walking with Jesus. They had accountability groups all around them. But they lost their first love. They lost that vital relationship with Jesus. And as a result, they're no longer walking with him. It's a sad story. And if you've been a Christian for more than a year, you can attest to the same exact thing. They lost their first love, and they left Jesus. There is a mentality on, on the idea of accountability groups or fellowship groups that can, in fact, create a codependency. And we need fellowship with other brothers. Again, I want to be clear, I'm not putting that down, but it's insufficient. We have to have a vital relationship with Jesus, the man's man. All right. Because we're men of extremes. You know, um, and and you may say, well, that's not me. I'm not... A man of extremes. Well, what are all men of extremes? I want to give a word of caution when we focus in on the man's man that we mustn't forget that this man was 100% God and 100% man. Because we can easily go to one extreme or the other with our relationship with Jesus. We can have the Isaiah vision. We can have the Peter vision when the Lord Jesus tells him to cast his nets after he's been fishing all night. He pulls in 153 big fish, almost breaks the net. Peter's first reaction was, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That's one end of the panorama. The other end of the spectrum is, Jesus is my buddy. Now, I have a friend, a good friend. I've known him for, oh, about 15 years out in California. And he's got this Jesus is my buddy mentality. And even though he's been a Christian for about 14 of those years, you still have the language coming out. There's still this kind of stuff that comes out. It's obvious that his relationship is tipped towards the one side. Jesus is my buddy. 
and there's no fear there. Listen, this man, this man's man that we're going to talk about is God. And we need to reverence him just like God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be extreme on one end or the other. He's provided a way which we can have a living and vital relationship with him. Now this issue, this confusion has been a problem for since the church started. For the millennia, this has been a problem where some has go, gone so far as to take a text like uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2. And they're, they can say that when Jesus came down to be a man's man, he emptied himself of his deity so he could relate to people. And that's heresy. In fact, I'm going to spend more time today in Philippians. So please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Because I want to expose this heresy for what it is. Philippians chapter 2. Now remember again the context of this wonderful epistle. The church of Philippi is struggling. Guess what? All churches struggle. Except ECF for those of you that aren't here. uh, That don't come here regularly. We have no problems here. But the church is struggling. And one of the issues that the church is struggling with is that folks are a little upset because they're not being given the respect that is due them for the things that they've done for Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter. (laughs) And he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. You see, there were people saying, I'm a deacon, and I tie up my time so much doing things for people, and yet nobody ever says thanks. I'm an elder, and I have to work, and I have to do all these other things, and then I minister to people, and nobody ever says, boy, you're a great elder, thank you. It just doesn't happen. And I'm upset about it. I think I ought to be getting some recognition. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. Hold up there. Wait just a minute. Think about something else. And he says, I want you to be of the same mind and regard one another. And then he pulls out the big guns. (coughs) Verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form or schema of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And verse 7 is the, is the verse that these folks would use. But he, the New American Standard says, emptied himself. Now they introduced this whole idea that if he was really God, if Jesus was really God, then he couldn't have real flesh. You know, throughout the Old Testament, you see theophany over and over and over and over again, where God comes and pays a visit to man. But it's more of a shell. It's not an incarnation. We'll talk about that later. But these folks that believe that all flesh was sinful, they're known as Gnostics, came up with this theory that Jesus emptied himself 
of deity. And that is not true. And that is what gives a lot of cults their main issue. They don't recognize Jesus, the man, as fully God. And this idea of emptying himself is taken as laid aside as deity. And he did not. This is Kenosis theory is full of hot air, but it separates us from Jehovah's Witness, from Mormons, and other cults. Even Islam believes Jesus was a great prophet. This morning, I want to celebrate the actual fact that some 2,000 years ago, something happened in the personhood of God. It is the great hinge in redemptive history that God changed for the first time in eternity. God became man. He had not been man before. Surely he had visited in a theophany or a presence to communicate some principle or practice. But he had not become a man before. And some 2,000 years ago, God changed. And I know you say, well, that's heresy. God's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And we could talk about that in the Q&A if you wish. <clears throat> but I'll have Reed answer because I won't have any voice. But God changed. Think about it. This is quite simple, but it's quite profound. God changed. He became something that he wasn't. And what he did here in verse 7 of Philippians 2, but emptied himself, taking. The idea of emptying himself was that he took the form of a man. It's a humble thing for God. And we'll talk a lot about that in a minute. God changed and became man in every sense of the word. He was not man before. He had not experienced anything like this before. God changed and became man. The man, our pioneer, while holding his deed, he took the form of a man. This is the great humility, the great humbling that we read about in verse 8 of this same text. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This man, our pioneer, became something he was not before. Now you have that great, wonderful verse in John, the Gospel of John and first chapter. You know, the Gospel of John is wonderful because it presents Jesus as God man. (laughs) In a way that the other Gospel writers don't. And you have that 14th verse, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that is a profound statement. It's not a new statement, but it's profound. The Word from eternity became flesh and dwelt, lived with us. John is so excited about it, he writes about it in his first epistle. The very first verse of the first chapter of his epistle. What does he say? 
He says, what we have seen with our eyes, <clears throat> what we have beheld, what we have handled with our hands is the living word. Now, that's quite a simple statement. That's not very theological, but it is very theological. And John was excited about it until he died. <laughs> that he got to handle the living word. Touch it. He had a corporal body. He had flesh and blood. He was a man. He was a man's man. Now, we have an identity that is more than soul-spirit identity, more than spiritual contact with our the image of God being imprinted on our souls more than being an eternal being. Now we have a physical identity that we can grab a hold of. Now I have somebody that when I'm trying to run the race, I can actually physically, like John said, we beheld him, we saw him with our eyes, and we touched him with our hands. He was real. He was real. Now if that doesn't make you fascinated or stunned, or amazed, then you're far above the angels. Because you remember the great text in Luke, when the shepherds were out tending their flocks, and the angel comes down to make an announcement that the Savior is coming. <clears throat> now, here's a picture. And you know the text, right? You all know the text, Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> Wish I had time to turn to all these texts, but I don't. But this is a great text, right? <coughs> Sorry. You get this idea of this picture in your mind of the angels kind of elbowing each other out of the way to look. They were so fascinated about what was happening that God was being born in a manger as a, as a little baby boy. They were so fascinated that they were making way, making way in the whole... The whole skies were filled with heavenly beings singing praises to God because of this incarnation that happened. This is no small event. This is an event that thrilled the entire universe of created angels and heavenly beings. Now back in the Philippians text, chapter 2 and verse 6, this is what Paul tells us about this Jesus who though, although he existed in the form of God, and this is not a veiled language for he was like God or he was similar to God. This is numerical identity with God. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. You know, there are things in our life that we don't want to let go. <laughs> well, hold on to it. Right? Maybe I think I've accomplished something in my life. Maybe I've done some things in the past. And I want to hold on to those things and I want to be recognized for those accomplishments and those things that I've done in the past. And you see this with a lot of older guys. You can tell they're on the downside, you know, the minus DYDX, the slope going down. And they reminisce about the good old days when they used to do something. You know, God deliver us from that. Even though we're old, some of us. Well, some of us are older by the second. Well, all of us actually are older by the second. But we want to hang on. And in the same sense, Jesus did not hang on to being God. 
They did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. How can you or I possibly understand the significance of that statement? How can we? How can we possibly understand what it was like for Jesus in heaven receiving the worship 24, well, there is no time in heaven, but all day, all night, worship of heavenly beings. And he's going to give that up and be born in a manger as a baby. And I want to talk about that in a little bit. You know the priestly prayer in John's Gospel, chapter 17? You get a little, a little picture in that prayer of what Jesus gave up. Because in that prayer, at the end of his ministry, he's saying, I did it. (laughs) I did it. I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, give me back my glory. (laughs) And that wasn't some egomaniac saying, hey, I want credit. It was give me back my glory. I had it before. I want it again. Give me back my glory. If you don't believe me, take a look at that wonderful prayer, John 17. Just look at the first five verses. You get the whole concept of the work that's been completed, the whole concept of give me back my glory. Give me what was before. Now, in heaven, as I said, he received worship, he received honor and glory on a constant basis. But I want to talk about what he let go of and what he accepted in the incarnation. First of all, think about the characteristic of omnipresence. Another $4 word, but you can figure it out if you don't know what it is. Omnipresence. He was God. He could be anywhere and everywhere at the same time in the incarnation he gave that up. Now, I know it's hard for us in our finite minds to imagine the constraint associated with being human when you're God. But he gave up omnipresence. Think about the fact that the eternal one, you know, God doesn't live, you know, God doesn't like get up in the morning and then go to bed at night. God doesn't live, you know, there's the, the dimension of space and time. God doesn't live in the constraints of time. Time is something that we experience as humans, right? Well, just think about it for a minute. When Jesus gave up the prerogatives and privileges associated with being deity, and he came to this earth, he had to live on a day-by-day basis. I mean, this is, is, think about it, growing. He experienced growing. Now, as God, do you think he ever experienced growing? That was a new experience for him. Limitations of growing and, think about fatigue. A little while later, I want to talk. I keep pushing these things off for later. Isn't that great? I'm almost out of time. Um, I want to talk about Jesus at the well in Samaria. And he was physically exhausted. He had never 
been physically exhausted in all of eternity. He didn't know what it was like to be physically exhausted in all of eternity. But now he's constrained by the existence of time. Think about the independence that he enjoyed as God. The independence. He is co-equal with God. He needed nothing. Now on the earth he needs everything. Do you realize when there was no doctor, but whoever it was picked up the baby. We were just talking about babies. Picked up Jesus by the ankles and gave him a swat on the butt to get him to breathe. He took air into lungs. That was the first time in eternity he had ever done that. And he screamed. (coughs) Just like a baby. (coughs) Jesus was a baby. It wasn't like he was pretending to be a baby. He didn't sit there saying, no, let's see, what should I do now? Uh, Oh, I think I'll breathe. That would be a good thing. He just breathed because he was a baby. He was truly man, truly God at the same time. He always became dependent. The independent one became dependent. Needed food, strength, sleep, existence, mental faculty. He understood that when he was exhausted, his brain didn't function like it was supposed to. And he was exhausted half the time when he considered his earthly ministry. So exhausted he could get into a boat that's going through all kinds of difficult water and he's sleeping. Why? Well, because he's tired. That was real deep, wasn't it? I mean, theologically deep to think he was tired so he slept. I mean, he was a man. But for the first time in his existence, he struggled with the constraints associated with manhood. The omnipotent one. Now this is uh, this is where you start going out on thin ice because you don't know how much he knew and when he knew it. It's obvious when he was 12 years old he knew something about what was going on and who he was. You know it's mind-boggling sometimes. This is This is a little detour. Think about the brothers that didn't believe in who he was. And yet they grew up with a guy who never sinned. I had no brothers when I grew up. I wish I had. But those of you that had brothers, it would not be difficult for you to say, I observed sin in him. Right, Scott? Big time. The omnipotent one for the first time placing himself in a position where he was in need. And I want to I want to just meditate a minute on the wilderness temptation in Matthew chapter 4. What's that all about? Jesus gets baptized at the beginning of his ministry. The Holy Spirit comes down. And God spoke again, didn't he? It wasn't just at the transfiguration. But he spoke at the baptism. And said something similar to, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately what happens to him? Wilderness, temptation. Threefold temptations. First time? No, I'm sure he was tempted as he was growing up. But the first time in his official ministerial capacity, he was tempted. And you know, That brings me comfort to know that my Jesus, my Savior, my best friend, was tempted 
like me. <clears throat> the God-man. We should stand back, similar to the angels, and just be amazed at who this Jesus is. <clears throat> Can we, from our vantage point, see that Jesus was not only man living and dying as our substitute, thus fulfilling God's good and appropriate demands, but also that we might see how we should live. How we should live. So this morning, can you see Jesus? That's the question that we got to ask our own selves. We need to apply this to ourselves and say, can we see Jesus as he really is, by faith? Is he the one that we've focused our eyes on to run the race? <clears throat> he becomes the standard for us in the new covenant. The ideal lived out before us. <clears throat> he is the human definition of how to live. He is our standard. This is what we measure ourselves against. Jesus, the man. He's the ultimate example. <clears throat> and he's also our authority. But I say to you, he says <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, you have heard it said, but I say. And he redefines his authority as king. Because even in this state of manhood, he was still king. He never gave up being God. He never stopped being deity. He couldn't stop being deity any more than I could be God. <clears throat> he is who he is. He's God. And so as deity, he has authority over us and redefines all of our relationships, redefines how we should live. He's our standard. We don't need another standard. We have Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus redefines murder. You know, brothers, we may be not standing before the trial, uh, waiting for the judge to convict us and send us to the death chamber or life imprisonment, but we're all guilty of murder, as Jesus defined it. <laughs> You're guilty. Call no man fool. Right? Jesus redefines adultery. And listen, guys, the curse of the age... The curse of the age is adultery. And if you look, so is the look in Jesus' definition upon a woman and lust after her. You've committed adultery already. And you know, we try not to. Uh, my, I gotta, this is a confession. So maybe we should turn off the mic for a second. My wife and I watch American Idol sometimes we haven't the last couple of weeks but the other night we turned it on i also watch a lot of um, i'm a basketball nut so i've been watching all the college games till my you know my nose starts uh, anyway um but the other night we turned american idol on and, and the the judge uh, jennifer lopez has got some kind of outfit on where she's basically undressed in front of anybody who wants to see and I can't look at that, guys, because if I do, I'm going to sin. Because I'm like you are. I like good-looking women, and I cannot look upon that without sinning. 
Brothers, adultery is defined by Jesus. It's not what's acceptable in the crowd. You look upon that woman, you're already committing adultery unless you say, well, it doesn't bother me. I can look at that all day long. Well, there's a word for that. And it's not nice. Jesus redefines divorce. Jesus redefines taking an oath. Jesus redefines our reaction to being sinned against. Jesus redefines our relationship with those who persecute us. Jesus Jesus redefines our relationship to God and teaches us how to pray our Father. New covenant reality. Very unique. Very unique. So, hopefully we start out with this basis of who Jesus is. Who is the man Jesus Christ? And this afternoon, I want to help us look at Jesus to focus our eyes on Jesus in three practical ways. Look at Jesus in his submission. Look at Jesus in his humility. And look at Jesus in his suffering as our forebearer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the ability to see Jesus. Because if it were not for your word, we wouldn't know who we're talking about. So, Lord, I'm grateful for your word. Thank you for it. I pray your Holy Spirit would write these things in our heart that we might love you more. That we might love our Lord Jesus more. Thank you in his name. Amen. All right. So, am I on or? I guess I'm not on. The format here is to... Uh, allow a greater sense of koinonia among us than perhaps we've ever had before, which means that we can be transparent with one another. I've, uh, I've got a bunch of pens and pencils to jot down your notes, as well as to maybe write uh, out questions that you might want to ask. At the end of each session, we're going to have about 10 minutes or so of uh, Q&A, so that you, it may be a question that you have for Al or Peter when he speaks, uh, or it may be a comment, you know, something that, you know, was triggered while these gentlemen speak, uh, and that we can all share, you see, and benefit from that, and thereby experience some of God's grace uh, through koinonia. So, uh, this is, uh, we're going to take about 10 minutes and uh, give you an opportunity to, to be heard, and I've got the mic here so it can be recorded. Uh, the floor is open. Anything I step to th- on, out on thin ice, theologically incorrect. Come on, we have all these theologians, high-powered, highly paid, I might add, theologians. Yeah, right, Dave. Anyway? For recording purposes. Okay, I will share from a great theologian. It's it's definitely not me. It's uh, by a man by the name of Bruce Ware, I think who many of us are familiar with. But one thing that he taught uh, when I was in seminary that was really helpful to me anyway, and maybe I'll share it and see if it's helpful to you, is that, especially in that Philippians 2 passage, that um, Jesus, it wasn't so much that he... Um, took off all of these things, but rather that his glory was veiled by the addition of humanity. Right. 
And he gives an example, and I can personalize it to you. If you were to lend me your Corvette, and if I was to drive it down you to... You just told the entire group here that I have a Corvette. <laughs> I'm keeping that secret. <laughs> All right. To lend me a Corvette, or rent me one, um, and I was to drive it down to Dansville, especially today, yeah. um, it would go from its original glory that was <laughs> evident, all gleaming tires, coat of wax, and very quickly uh, it would add to it a huge layer of grime and salt. And, and so that's kind of the analogy for Jesus taking on humanity, kind of veiled, veiled the glory. It wasn't that he lost the, the glory of, of being divine, but rather that uh, he took, took on. So he was humbled by taking. In fact, that's the yeah. way the verse is written. He was he, he emptied himself. himself in the New American Standard King James Version. Or he made himself of no reputation by taking. Exactly. So the action is not by laying aside, but by taking. <clears throat> Why is that so hard uh, that so many people get it wrong? Because they associate flesh with sin. And they just can't deal with the incarnation. God and flesh co-resident. Um, yeah, I. that's where my mind went right before you said it. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the... There seems to be a conflict between... Well, and certainly in our current... Um, cultural context, the idea of incarnational uh, ministry, which is is in its own sense, uh, well, in a sense, I value. Um, but so relative to men's groups and accountability and that kind of thing, so we've got the idea of ministering to one another incarnationally, which, you know, so what do we mean by that? And then, yeah, how is that connected to um, that the the Philippians two passage, how, and how do we avoid kenosis theory? Because um, we we are so so you know back to Hebrews, hey you know don't forsake the gathering together of yourselves, right? So we're called to be together. We're called to be in relationship. Um, how do how do we keep that in balance without making the mistake that you pointed out? Three points. Well organized. Feel free. Uh, it's tough. You know, first of all, a relationship needs to be genuine. And the problem with genuine relationships is, is just like those of us that are married, we understand that to have a genuine relationship with our wives, it requires a great deal of work and time and investment. It requires a great deal of humility. Um, and it's hard for men to do either, to invest the time, the work, or to express the humility, to honoring one another as we should in marriage. Well, if we're going to have a relationship beyond, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. How's it going? Um, it takes time. And that's the real, the most precious commodity, especially when you get older, <clears throat> is time. You know, I've been trying to have coffee with various 
men. It ends up being mostly young men, um, just to get to know them, so we can get beyond the, hey, how you doing? You know, whatever. Um, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, I forgot the next two. Well, then the willingness to do that. You know, there has to be sometimes a two-way street, and often it's not. You know, trying just trying to have a relationship with some men is challenging. Because, you know, both parties need to be, you know, so the, before you get to the willingness thing, you almost have to, you know, apart from the obvious, which is the Holy Spirit uh, forging the way ahead of you to have the relationship, that's a huge tr- uh, challenge it to is. me to, to develop relationships with men beyond the obvious. The but this is where um, it's like in marriage. If you're the head of your home, you lead in that relationship. And by expressing honor and by expressing love, what happens is your spouse will reflect it. The same thing is true in our relationships as men. As a leader, you're going to express your love and your compassion, your desire to know that brother and to care for that brother and to nurture that brother. And he generally responds, unless... He's covering over a bunch of sin. Then he's going to be elbows straight, not bent, stay away. But we need to lead in these relationships. Set the course, set the pattern for what our relationship's going to be. By being open to someone, hopefully they're going to reflect that back to you in the same way that we love our wives. As a leader of a house, we love our wives. You love your wife. You don't say, when my, life, when my wife loves me, why, then I'll love her. That's not a leader, is it? Same thing in relationships with men. We must lead. Mm-hmm. One more, maybe? Yeah, Dane. Hold on. Get you recorded. Yeah, just touching on the idea of being fully God and fully man, where you were reading, he he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He lived as fully man, submitting himself to his parents, submitting himself to all proper authorities, and being day by day, as you said, in dependence on the Father and the Holy Spirit as a man he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God to declare himself to be the son of God to say before Abraham was I am and they knew what he meant and they wanted to kill him for it Right. and he didn't consider it robbery to still declare himself to be God come in the flesh right it wasn't a prideful thing yeah. It was simply factual thing. Remember Amos McCoy used to say, no brag, just fact? Um, I'm sorry. I'm, Amos McCoy, the real McCoys. Walter Brennan, no brag, just fact. Uh, I'm going to go there this afternoon to the practical examples. <coughs> and I was particularly fascinated about the relationship between Jesus and the high priest in the trial at the end of Matthew. Are you the Christ? Well, you said it. 
how many shirts did the guy lose? You know, I, but he tears his robe. And then that goes on and, you know, the rest of the ending of the trial. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I, some of this is just addressing where uh, current trends in the church, I guess, in the idea that um, relationship for relationship's sake seems to be a big thing right now in Christianity, as though relationship is the end goal. And Christ in coming, and especially in the incarnation, the end goal isn't simple relationship, but it's relationship as a means to an end. And that speaks to us, especially for those that are married, contemplating marriage, or any other relationship, is that we don't enter relationships purposefully. That there is something beyond the relationship to be had. That the relationship is a means towards something. So with Jesus uniting with us. He wasn't just after being close or being one of us. But he was in the process as the whole theme here is. The author and the finisher of our faith. He was taking us someplace in that relationship. And I wonder if we... I just finished reading a book, or not quite finished it because I'm angry at it, um, uh, called uh, Deep Church by Jim Belcher. And it's really trendy right now in in churches. And the whole concept is, is, as you start the book out, he had this sort of uh, community relationship with a bunch of people when he was in school, and he wants church to mimic that relationship that he had in school, so he's going to reproduce it everywhere which supposedly he did, but now since he's resigned from that church and isn't pastoring a church anywhere and it's, has gone on, apparently that, that relationship that he finally achieved didn't fulfill him at all. But he wrote a book so that we'd all do the same thing. Um, and, and so I, I wonder, you know, just as, as guys, we get together, you know, do we think about when we're going to have coffee with a friend of ours that there ought to be something here where we both go beyond just having coffee and enjoying one another's time together, but really pouring into each other's lives. And the humility aspect is, what can I get from you? Uh, and the purposeful aspect is, what can I pour into you? And I, I think that sometimes we just get lost in the, the fun of the experience, and it's... <clears throat> so it's a men's conference... We, we don't want to have sex with our wives just for the pleasure. It's pleasurable, but it's part of the intimacy. Mm-hmm. And it's the intimacy that we're ultimately after because if, if there were disease or accident or something that prevented the physical relationship, that shouldn't alter the true relationship, which is her coming into my life so that I might be conformed to the image of Christ and me working in her toward that, but there, it, there doesn't seem to be the end game. The finisher part doesn't seem to get into that. So I'm just tossing a bunch of ideas out in terms of, <clears throat> yeah, let's build relationships, but let's, let's do it with a purpose in mind. And some people, you naturally gravitate to more than others. There's very few in this room I like, but um, 
you know, I, I can still have a relationship with you. Uh, Maybe a bad relationship, but it can be a relationship. But but is there purpose? Is there design more than just, you know, am I, am I still a little kid playing more with the package than with the gift that's inside and that relating to the giver who's given it to me um, so that we move a little little deeper in that? Anyway, just some like beyond seeing the woods for the forest kind of a thing. There's a purpose in the relationship, not just the relationship. There's a, a goal. That's when a marriage starts to fall apart. Okay, we're going to uh, now take a break. And John uh, Deister is downstairs with his book display uh, for you to uh, observe and, you know, take a look at that. That's always a fun experience. And then we're going to reconvene here right at 1030. So you've got about 20 minutes, less than 20 minutes to uh, relax. (laughs) I hope they've been relaxed. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, I would like a house. The ones I've been using.